Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Pickaxe and Roll. I'm your host, Ryan Blackburn, at NBA Blackburn on Twitter, part of the Mile High Sports Podcast family. I'm the site manager over at Denver Stiffs, and I'm pretty proud of the, the work that we are putting in over there right now. Uh, we've got some season-in-review articles that are coming out over the course of these next two weeks. Got another couple of pieces that are going up over the course of that time, too, that should be very interesting. So make sure to go tune in to all of the work that Denver Stiffs is doing for sure. On this episode, we are going to mostly be talking about the guard rotation, kind of a season in review article. Uh, As we transfer into the offseason, the content is going to get a little bit different, of course, and I'm going to start mixing in uh, some hypothetical content, talking about the draft, free agency, trades, etc., because I know that that's what fans really want to watch or really want to listen to for sure. But I do want to give the end of the season its due diligence. And the way to do that, I'm going to spend five minutes or so on the end of your pressers for Murray, Porter, and Tim Connolly at the beginning here. But for the most part, I'm going to be doing season in review. And I'm breaking it into guards, wings, forwards, and bigs. So I've got four guards, four wings, four forwards, and three bigs. And then I'll, I'll just separate out Murray and Porter from that because I don't think we can. There's no real grades there for sure. Uh, but we've got some good content to be able to share. And I am excited to talk about all of these things and give each of these players their due diligence this year. Because it's important to talk about what happened. Uh, this team, this Nuggets team is very much in favor most of the time of just running it back. And that is a distinct possibility that other than, let's say, a couple of free agency signings and the 21st pick of the draft, there's a very possible reality that this team could just be the team that we see next year. And it's more of a a healthy look. So I'm going to go do my due diligence on that, too, and make sure to prep everybody for that possible scenario, because that's what happened last year as well. You run it back and guys just get hurt and it sucks. I don't think that's what's going to happen this year, but there is a possibility. So let's do season in review. But first, I want to share my brief thoughts on the Murray Porter and Tim Connolly pressers. Uh, MPJ spoke first. And, and honestly, if you want to hear my full thoughts on it, I wrote a detailed article on Denver Stiffs that's over 2,000 words that had some quotes in there, had some general thoughts on where the team is going to go and what it looks like. So make sure to check that out. As for this podcast, though, and as for kind of my general thoughts, it does seem like 
Murray and Porter definitely were not ready to come back at the end of the season when it seemed like things were gearing up to where Denver could have had them back at the end of the season if things had gone right. Murray progresses a little bit quicker in his rehab. Porter doesn't have the setback. There was a world where both of those guys could have played. And we we heard that. And that's one of the reasons why they weren't ruled out was because it, there was actually a possibility. Now, did it become very unlikely the longer they were out? Of course. And, and I'm not going to sit here and lie to anybody and say that uh, that that there was no way that they couldn't come back or they're absolutely going to come back. That's why it was so ambiguous for the entire time. But it, that was really the dominant narrative, the dominant story that came out of those pressers was that Denver was kind of in a holding pattern for most of the year. I think it affected their trade deadline. I think it affected their perspective on the year. And the fact that they're on the, in the holding pattern, they probably didn't learn enough about themselves and what that version of the team looks like at full strength to give a full and honest assessment of the regular season and playoff failure. Now, Tim Connolly's job is to sift through that, is to make sure that he knows and tries to give a, a best understanding of what the team would have looked like if they were fully healthy. And my general impression of that is that they probably would have still lost to the Warriors. Now, would they have been better? Yeah. Would they have won maybe one or two of the 50-50 games that they ended up losing? Yeah. However, the Warriors were still dynamic enough and unstoppable enough for them from a defensive perspective that Denver's got to figure out their perimeter defense. And Tim Connolly said as much, you didn't really get that much from the players in terms of what they need because uh, both of those guys said, if, if we're healthy, we feel like we're title contenders. And I think that that's true, but you've got to get the right matchups all of the time. And, and like, would they have beaten Utah with a fully healthy team? Yes. Would they have beaten Dallas? Probably. Would they have beaten Memphis? I don't know. And you start to get up to the top of the Western Conference and you realize, okay, the Western Conference has changed enough from when the vision of the team was established. So now you have, I don't know, you have like a whole bunch of guard dominated and, and perimeter oriented offenses that are operating. And that's not necessarily what Denver game planned for when they traded for Aaron Gordon and traded away Gary Harris. And they never really replaced Gary. And the actual replacement for Gary was P.J. Dozier, and he went down in two straight seasons. And that's just difficult for Denver to rely upon. And you have to then rely upon Will Barton for his defense and Monte Morris for his defense. And Austin Rivers was the lead perimeter defender for Denver. Faku Campazzo wasn't really good enough as a defender in order to justify sticking on the floor. And there's just a lot to unpack there that Denver was just unprepared from a perimeter defense standpoint. And it really became clear over these last two postseasons against two elite teams. Don't get me wrong, but you've got to be honest with yourself. You got to know that your offense isn't just going to overpower the opposing team. Like you're going to have to stop the opposing team as well. So that is Tim Connolly's goal. It seems like he understands that. It seems like 
the Nuggets are going to be able to go into the luxury tax in order to satisfy that. Now, how deep they go into the luxury tax is a big question, because if you go just like five million over, I actually think that's a mistake based off of the the numbers that I've been running and the simulations that I've been running. It's going to be hard for Denver to stay cheap. And even if they go into the luxury tax, that doesn't necessarily mean that they've satisfied all of their requirements for, for filling out a great roster. They're going to need a little bit more and they're going to need to go pretty hard. So I'm going to be curious to see what those moves are going to be. We're going to talk about those moves at another time. But for now, let's get into the season in review categories, and I'm going to go with the guards and the guard rotation first. I've chosen four guards, Monte Morris, Faku Campazzo, Bones Highland, and Marcus Howard. And Bryn Forbes isn't categorized into this because he spent more time on the wing at the two and the three, despite the fact that he's only 6'2". Austin Rivers, under normal circumstances, might be more of a guard. But with Denver, he was a wing. So we're going to talk about him as such. Uh, And then we'll get into the other positions as we get into future episodes. But for now, let's talk about Monte Morris. He is the lead guard in this scenario, the guy who played the most time. And we're going to start with what, like, I'm going to answer five simple questions for each of these guys. What were his responsibilities? What was the ideal role for this player? Was this the ideal role is what I mean? Did he succeed in this role? What's the trajectory and whether like it, it's sustainable, basically? And is this a player that fits Denver's plans going forward? Is, the, is this the right fit? And so we're going to answer all of those, starting with Morris. Now, what were his responsibilities? They were certainly elevated from the previous year, where last year he was the, star- he was the backup point guard. This year, he's the starter replacing Murray. He had to facilitate the offense, make sure to be able to run the two-man game with Nikola Jokic. And for the most part, that was successful, I think. I think that they they did a reasonable job there. But he was also sometimes defending really strong perimeter guard scorers and being forced into those positions because Denver didn't necessarily have the personnel to cover up for those weaknesses of his. So was this Monte Morris's ideal role? In And when I say ideal role, I mean within a championship caliber team, a, a playoff caliber team, some, some team that can get to the conference finals. I don't think this was his ideal role. I think nothing has really changed on, on that front. He seems like he's at his best in a high quality backup position. And that's not a bad thing. That's what he was signed to be. He was signed to be one of the best backup point guards at his position. And He is. Like, I do genuinely believe that. Now, is that good enough? And given that they just signed or just drafted Bones Highland and he looks like a a solid, really solid backup point guard as well, is that good enough for Denver? I don't know. But that's really what his ideal role is in all likelihood. But did he succeed as the starter? Was he good there? I would say mostly. I'd, I'd probably give him a grade of about a B maybe a B plus because he filled in for the bulk of the day-to-day responsibilities that were vacated by Murray's injury. And that was running pick and roll. That was running two man game. That was being a solid facilitator for the group. He, He didn't overstep his boundaries, but he stepped up where he was needed. He hit a big game winning shot this year, but that wasn't just 
what he did. There were a lot of times where it wasn't just Nikola Jokic who was settling down the offense. It was Monte Morris. He was getting them into positions where he could hit that that little 18-foot jumper going to his left or his right, uh, where he would run two-man game with Nikola Jokic. Maybe he would cut through the lane and hit a contested layup. And there were just a lot of good things and solid things about Monte. Now, they were just solid. And basically what he did was he recreated what he was doing for most of his career with the second unit. Did he elevate his game? I think in order to be honest, I I think the answer is no. But to be able to recreate what you do against starters is a really big deal. And, And Denver got to see that firsthand, that they know that he is one of those guys that they can trust in a playoff scenario. And and I thought he acquitted himself pretty well for what Denver asked him to do. Uh, Is that good enough? Is that what they need going forward? I don't know. I think you could go a number of different ways on that front. But he, to me, seems like a guy that you can trust, that you can put into that situation and feel pretty good. Here are his numbers for the playoffs. 14 points per game. 49% from the field, 42.3% from three, had a really strong effective field goal percentage, only shot 75% from the line, but it was pretty low volume. Uh, 5.4 assists, also with the the 14 points. He had one high steals game and then didn't really have any steals beyond that. So he was able to provide the points and the assists from kind of the token starter point guard role. It wasn't dynamic, and that's probably where you find your biggest advantage going forward is you need somebody that could be a little bit more dynamic. Fortunately, Denver's got Jamal Murray coming back, so probably won't be an issue. Now, what is his trajectory? I think we know that it's basically this. I think we know that this is who Monte Morris is. That is not a bad thing, because everybody could use a Monte Morris, somebody who steadies the ship who can be a part of closing lineups at times, but really his biggest advantage is that he can bridge the gap between the starters and the bench in a playoff series. A lot of teams will cut down their rotations to seven or eight guys, especially of the teams that they trust. But you don't think that the Toronto Raptors, who lost Fred Van Vliet during their their playoff series and were just playing Gary Trent Jr. as the only guard on their roster— You don't think that they could have used Monte Morris? You don't think that he would have played like 35 minutes for them? There's a lot of teams that Monte Morris would have played well and and would have played for in the playoffs. And though his role might be reduced in some instances, he has more benefits than detriments at this point, even in playoff competition. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing whether he is a part of that ultimate vision for Denver. Because, let's face it, there is some overlap in minutes and role between him and Bones. And that's why I kind of question his fit with Denver's Denver's plans going forward, because most likely he's a good fit. I think there's a lot of reason to believe that he's a good fit. But there's also reason to believe that Denver needs some bigger players in order to improve their defense. And I'm not sure if Bones can do that. Do you prioritize... Morris, do you prioritize Bones? Could one of them be out the door? 
because if you're getting back Murray and feel pretty comfortable with just one of those guys as the backup guard, then you might change your mind. You might be in a situation where you have to sacrifice something in order to improve somewhere else. Now, I'm not sure if I would do that, but I am asking the question, and I think it's an important question to ask. So that combination of Morris and Bones, if they play heavy rotation minutes next to each other next year, that likely puts a cap on what Denver's perimeter defense can be. Because if those guys are playing with Jokic, there's not going to be a lot of dynamic defense being played. You can have a better, more comfortable rim-protecting center, or you could have somebody that could switch a little bit more, and maybe that helps. But I just don't know if Morris is that guy for Denver at that level. We will see. We'll ultimately see. Next, let's go to Faku Composo before we hit a break. This one will be shorter. Um, no pun intended. Number one, what were his responsibilities this year? He was the backup point guard. He was the guy who was going to facilitate the offense to really springboard things and to make sure that every guy had open shots when he was the point guard, when he was the guy controlling the offense without Nikola Jokic on the floor. He also would be the opposing pesterer, the guy who would try to disrupt the opposing team's lead ball handlers while they were on the floor. And sometimes it worked, especially against some of the lower tier teams, against the Houstons of the world, the Sacramentos, the, uh, I don't know, pick a, pick a team that finished pretty low, uh, OKC, teams like that. He had a role, Faku did, in making sure that those guys played through hell. And he was very good at that. He made some winning plays. He provided uh, the steadying of the ship for Denver's reserves at times. And that's probably what his ideal role should be. If, if you're a glass half full kind of guy, that's what he should be doing for pretty much every team. His actual ideal role based off of the shooting talent and based off of what we saw this year is probably the third point guard, not necessarily the backup guy that plays every night, but kind of the change of pace option. Somebody that when the second string is injured or they are not playing well, then you can throw in a change of pace option instead. Now, did Faku succeed in his role, in what his uh, responsibilities were this year? The answer is no. And I don't want to say that from a biased perspective. I, I do want to believe in his vision and in, in what he's able to do. The problem is, is that what happened around him, he is supposed to be able to elevate the group. He was supposed to be able to put them into positions where they could succeed. But Denver's bench lineup was a disaster during the bulk of his minutes. I thought he would be able to set up bones a little bit better and Austin Rivers and Jamichael Green and Jeff Green. And though he didn't have DeMarcus Cousins as kind of an outlet for him in a lot of these games, I do think that he could have been better at setting the table for these guys. But on top of that, it's not just his own passing and his own setting of the table that really fell off a cliff for Denver this year. It was the fact that he couldn't score his shooting numbers were so bad. 
and not being able to shoot from the mid-range, not being able to shoot from deep, that really inhibited Denver's offense. And if, if he had been a better finisher at the rim, then it might have been a little bit different. Like Bones Highland is shooting 70% from zero to three feet. Faku is down to 61%. Uh, none of Denver's guys, other than Bryn Forbes, who had just such a low volume of shots at the rim, none of Denver's other guys were really below 68% or so. And that's a, that's a problem. If you are trying to construct a lineup where the most efficient shots are at the rim or behind the three-point line, because Faku wasn't shooting in the mid-range either. So, kind of a failure. And the biggest problem there that, that really happened was the fourth quarter overlap minutes with the starters, where Michael Malone would keep him on the floor because he wanted a pesky defender, somebody who could defend at the point of attack. Not a surprise given Denver's issues there. But the problems were just that Denver's spacing was so cramped and he couldn't play the role that he needed to in order to be successful because it was at the uh, it was at the behest of the it was at the the issues of the team basically like they would not be able to do what they needed to do in those fourth quarters and the opposing team would lock down they would play better Denver would play worse and Denver would lose these leads. And those were those were really bad. It was just a bad situation all around. So what is Faku's trajectory with the Nuggets? It's unclear. 31 years old. He's an undersized point guard. Point guards that are undersized generally don't age that well. Obviously, Faku keeps like he's in great shape. He's uh, like it doesn't seem like a guy who's going to tail off from an energy perspective. But a lot of these undersized point guards, what they do is to, in order to save their bodies, they shoot the ball. And he hasn't really been able to do that. And it's not something I really foresee him growing into. He's a firecracker. He's a firebug. He, he wants to get into the opposing team. Uh, he, he takes charges. He takes uh, risks. He dives into the crowd. Like I, I just don't see it aging that well from a, a physical standpoint where he's able to do all of these same things on his next contract. So is he a fit to be back for Denver? Probably not. I'd be shocked if he was back. There are way worse third point guard options to have around though. And if Denver and he have a mutual desire for him to be the third point guard and just stay in the NBA then by all means, like like sign the contract and, and it's fine. He probably, when he gets back on the court, he'll be in a different mental headspace and the team will be too. And, and all of those other options, hopefully they're putting him in a better situation to succeed, not worse. But there was a to toxicity to the situation externally with his fan base, not internally. Let me, let me just keep that in mind. Like, there were no issues with Faku as a teammate or anything like that. He was very, very professional, very, very good. But sometimes some of the external stuff that has a way of seeping in and affecting things, affecting mentalities. And I just honestly think that he needs a clean slate and that the Nuggets probably do too. So Denver probably needs that roster spot. They probably need it for a guy who's a better fit. And maybe somebody who's a little bit uh, more dynamic athletically or a better shooter. And 
that's probably the direction that they will go. We will see if that actually happens, but for now, let's take a break. When we come back, we are going to discuss Bones Highland and Marcus Howard. We'll be right back. and roll. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. If you can, it would be awesome if you could rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Five stars, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcasts. That would be fantastic. All right, let's get into the second segment here, season in review for Bones Highland and Marcus Howard. And uh, this segment won't be as long as the first one. I'm sorry for the poor timing and, and spacing of that, but it is just like you you wanted to I wanted to give the proper time and the proper amounts to Monte and Faku. Monte was the starter. Faku was initially the backup, and I do think the plan was for him to be the backup point guard for all of the time that Murray was out. And I think that they brought in Bones to kind of play that Murray role from his rookie season, where ideally he would be and and maybe it was not even that, but like when Murray played in his rookie season, he was the backup point guard next to Jameer Nelson, or the backup shooting guard next to Jameer Nelson. I apologize. Faku as a Jameer Nelson approximate kind of makes sense, and, and Murray as a Bones Highland approximate kind of makes sense too. So it just didn't work with Faku and Bones next to each other, and, and I, I wonder if that says something about Bones and and his style of play, how he needs to play with the ball in his hands, because he definitely was better for sure like that. But it is very interesting to think about, and I hope that's not a, like, we'll we'll just have to see what his ultimate role is. But let's talk about him. What were Bones' responsibilities? Initially, like I said, backup shooting guard, initially is just a bench shooter, slasher, somebody who could create with the ball in his hands, but part of the offense was basically Faku running the show and then Bones kind of riffing off of that. When Faku was benched and Bones was moved over to the lead playmaker spot, he actually developed and and was a pretty strong passer and pretty strong playmaker for not just himself, but for other people. And on top of that, he was the energy booster this season. He was the guy where You needed that extra oomph. You needed that extra little something. Give him the ball. Let him get hot. Get the crowd all riled up. And that was an extra role that he filled this year. And he did it really well. Now, was that his ideal role? I would say it's pretty ideal. I think especially in his rookie year, this was the right way to handle Bones. And I was a little bit upset at the very beginning of the year when he didn't play like the first three or four games or so, because I thought it was clear that he outplayed every single one of the people in front of him, whether it was Faku, Austin Rivers, even P.J. Dozier, although P.J. looked really good in the preseason that year. Um, It just seemed like Bones should have been playing even early, but I'm glad that Malone was patient with him because I think it gave everybody an, an appreciation for the growth that he had throughout the year. Now, did he succeed? Absolutely. His best moments 
definitely outweighed any of the bad moments. When he got hot and he got the crowd rolling, it was some of the best moments at Ball Arena. And I know that's kind of independent of wins and losses, but Bones also contributed to wins. And, and there, was a, there was a time there that when he scored at least 10 points, double figures, the Nuggets were undefeated at the, the early stages of his season. And that was like a it's like a first 30 or 40 games kind of thing. So him being able to score was such a big deal for Denver. And his progression throughout the year as a more confident and capable scorer, as a more confident and capable playmaker, he ultimately became the most reliable offensive fulcrum that Denver had outside of Nikola Jokic. And that's kind of crazy to think about because Monte Morris has been in the league for a while now. Will Barton, probably the most talented perimeter playmaker scorer that Denver has on their roster outside of Murray and Porter, I guess. But Bones outplayed them both from a independent of Jokic standpoint. Like none of those guys were able to make things work when Jokic went to the bench like Bones was. And that's really interesting to think about. He had the highest usage rate among the rotation guys outside of Jokic and Cousins, and Cousins was a turnover machine. What Bones was able to do in keeping his turnovers down and keeping the the positive plays up and the negative plays at a minimum, that was really, really impressive throughout the entire season. And he's likely achieving all-rookie this year because of it. And when you achieve all-rookie as a 26th overall pick, that's the definition of overachievement, honestly. So did he succeed? Yes, absolutely. Now, what is the trajectory for Bones Highland? I initially stated on previous podcasts, one here and then probably one on Locked On with Adam, I'm pretty sure, was that his trajectory could be an all-star. Like, he could be a guy that's kind of have, having capable ceiling with Jamal Murray. And that's a pretty exciting thing that somebody of his caliber and somebody that Denver drafted at 26th overall could be so potent. But a word of caution, because while the trajectory is probably up, sometimes the rookie season can give you an early great impression. And then the actual reality of who that player is, isn't as exciting. And let me give a few examples over the last Uh, nine drafts. Michael Carter-Williams, Jordan Clarkson, Devontae Graham, and Buddy Heald. When you think about those players, what do you think about? They're all scorers. They're all dynamic in their own different ways. They're all guards. And in Michael Carter-Williams' case, he was a rookie of the year in an admittedly down season. But then it never got better for him. And for Jordan Clarkson, He was a guy that showed scoring and playmaking talent for an ugly, awful L.A. Lakers team. It was probably the most exciting thing about that team that year. And never really got better other than just his usage, like his his actual minutes and his usage where he was on the court. So that was the only thing that ever really improved for Jordan Clarkson. And yes, he did win a Sixth Man of the Year award. I think that Joe Ingles on his team was a better sixth man, a more dynamic and impactful sixth man. So it's tough. Like that, if that is the top end, 
then how valuable are you really, I think, is a fair question. Devontae Graham, it wasn't his first year that was his best, but it was his second year where he had like 18 and 7 for the Charlotte Hornets as a replacement for Kemba Walker and was very, very good, very, very dynamic. And ever since then, it's kind of really come back down to earth. And then Buddy Heald, somebody who really showed some some very solid progress with the Pelicans and then was traded to the Sacramento Kings. His best years were his third and fourth year, I'm pretty sure. But ever since then, it hasn't been as great. And that's just kind of the, the long and short of it, folks, that sometimes the best is early, but you have to be honest on what you think that player actually can be. And it doesn't mean that Bones won't improve. Like, I think that Jordan Clarkson has improved in some things, and Buddy Heald has improved in some things. But for Bones, what is his actual ceiling? Is he going to be a better defender? Is he going to be a dynamic shooter? Is he going to be a dynamic passer? And can he play with the starters in the same way that he plays with the bench? I don't know. And I think that's a fair question for Denver to ask. So when you think about Denver's plans for next year, and if he's in those plans, I would say most likely, very likely, like I actually think that they would probably keep Bones over keeping Monte. But teams might believe in Bones, and that might be the difference for Denver in acquiring an elite perimeter defender, somebody that can be impactful for their championship vision. Would they trade Bones for getting better on a defensive level? I don't know. I don't know if they would. But I do think that it is possible, and I do think that people should be ready for that possibility. Because if they're not, then it's gonna it could get ugly. Now, do I, I don't think that Bones is getting traded. I, do, I don't. But Denver's got to improve their perimeter defense in some way, shape, or form. And is it going to happen? If you have Morris and Bones and Murray all in the backcourt together, I don't know. So we'll see. Next, we'll talk about Marcus Howard. Marcus Howard didn't play as much this season. His responsibilities, there weren't a lot. Like, let's let's be honest. Denver re-signed him to a two-way contract after signing him to a two-way last offseason. He was very good for Denver in the playoffs last year against the Portland Trailblazers, fell off against the Phoenix Suns, but so did everybody. But his contributions, I think, earned him another two-way deal. And I don't know if that was ever necessarily the plan. I think that his plan was to be at Summer League, proving himself to other teams and earning an actual contract. But he never got to Summer League because he got COVID. So he came off the bench and and was a two-way guy once again this year. He wants to, like, he's changing up the game with his scoring, but he's very limited other than that. And and everybody knows that, and, and Denver didn't ask him to do more than that. And that is probably his ideal role. He's probably something like a Bryn Forbes type, what he's been doing for the San Antonio Spurs and Milwaukee, and then for Denver this year. It's just as a guy who can come off the bench, can light up teams from the perimeter, and really continues to showcases skills and his value in that way. Now, did he succeed in that? 
I think it's an eh. I think maybe. He got hurt pretty close to the beginning of the year. I think it was against Milwaukee, where it was the last game that Denver played without Nikola Jokic for a while. And he, I thought he tore his ACL. I was in the building. I watched the play and it was ugly. It was, it looked like he rolled up on it and got really bad. He didn't end up tearing it. I think he tore or or sprained the MCL, but he was fortunate that it was less significant. And from, from that ACL tear and Denver got him back, but they actually got him back like right before they acquired Bryn Forbes. And once you get Bryn Forbes, there just wasn't any utility to Marcus Howard because Forbes is kind of like the veteran version of Marcus Howard. And I'm not sure that Bryn played that well this year. I thought he had some moments where he did some good things. But ultimately, Marcus Howard got benched after that and wasn't really an impactful guy from an on-court standpoint. Now, he was was very supportive. He was very good. And I don't want to belittle that in any way, shape, or form. But if that is his role with Denver, then I I think his trajectory and his role and his fit is unclear. He has several limits physically, skill set-wise, not a good passer, not a good defender. He probably needs to play that Bryn Forbes role, like I said, but is that a role that Denver really needs next year? No, because they they might actually just re-sign Bryn Forbes. But for the other thing, Denver just needs more defense. And if you're going to prioritize Monte Morris and Bones Highland and Jamal Murray, tripling or quadrupling down on that and getting Marcus Howard too seems like a bad idea. It seems like you would like to vary up your roster just a little bit, add in some other guys that can fill some different roles or at least have a chance to fill those roles. So, Denver needs those roster spots to be as productive as they can. Marcus Howard was kind of representing that home run swing, but also Vlaco Chanchar, Bull Bull, guys like that. Denver needs to hit on the edges of their roster. They need guys that can do all of those different things. Marcus Howard kind of falls into that category where he's he's a luxury rather than a need for Denver. So I don't think that he will be back. I think that Denver will probably go a different direction. But we'll see. Uh, They could always make a trade. They could always change up their roster look a little bit. And then Marcus Howard makes some sense to bring back. So we'll just have to wait and see what happens there. Let's take a final break. When we come back, we are going to talk about where Denver's guards need to get better for next year. We'll be right back. All right, back, final segment, pickaxe and roll, Ryan Blackburn here. Let's finish up here by talking about their small guards, the Denver Nuggets small guards, and, and where they need to be better. What's the what's the improvement? What are the categories where Denver's group really missed the mark? And in order to be a championship caliber group, you have to do X or Y or Z. Three things really stood out for me when it came to what Denver does well and what they don't necessarily do well. I think that because Denver's got some guys that are similar, some guys that are different, like I think the three-point shooting for this group is pretty good. Like Monte Morris, Bones Highland, Marcus Howard, all very good three-point shooters. 
Faku doesn't fall into that category, but three out of the four, that feels fine. The mid-range shooting, and uh, the finishing is its own little thing, because some guys are good, some guys aren't, so I'm not going to make that that much of a priority, but what I will say is that the the navigation of the mid-range, it's such an art that some people can fill and some people don't necessarily know how to do. And Denver's got a couple of guys that do it pretty well. And I'm just going to run through some percentages here. I posted this on Twitter last night. Going to run through some percentages here on the the mid-range field goal percentage on shots between 4 feet and 22 feet. So a very wide range. You could get a wide variety of different things. Davon Reed, 58%. Monte Morris, 47.5. Bryn Forbes, 43. Will Barton, 39. Austin Rivers and Marcus Howard were at 37%. Aaron Gordon, 34. Bones is at 36. Excuse me. Faku is at 31%. And PJ Dozier, while he was here, was at 29%. So, obviously, like, the mid range is not a place where you want to be. But. Teams are trying to force you to shoot mid-range shots. They're trying to uh, give you as as difficult of a mid-range shot as possible. That is where teams would like to force Denver's guards most of the time. Now, Monte Morris has kind of graduated out of that because he's shooting close to the same percentage as CJ McCollum over these last five years. Monte has been a great mid-range shooter. But he's at 47.5, and and Bones is at 36. 36 is not good. Bones could be better. He has this slow release. It's not really a hitch, but it's it's not an intuitive release from the mid-range, and it kind of changes up a little bit here or there. That is something that he has to work on, that if he wants to be one of the best guards in the NBA, he has to make that a priority for sure. Will Barton was at 39, so it's not like he has to go that much further in order to be just better than Will in that category. But Faku being 31% is absurd. Uh, Marcus Howard being 37% for as good of a, a three-point shooter as he is, that's absurd too. Uh, Denver, like they're going to get back Murray and Porter, and that should help out in this category for sure. But it's just a point of improvement for the majority of Denver's backcourt for sure. The other two categories are defensive. You've got screen navigation and your switch and your post defense. Screen navigation is the most important thing for a guard defensively because the most common action in the NBA is pick and roll. And when you have that high pick and roll, you need somebody that can get around that screen, can navigate it really well, and get to the point of the jump shot for a mid-range shot or a a three-point shot, and contest it as well as possible. Or you need to be able to chase things down from behind. You need to be able to stay attached if that guard is trying to get to the rim. There are lots of different ways to improve screen navigation, and there's lots of different nuances to becoming better at it. All I know is that Denver needs to get better because so much of Denver's defense this year was a high pick and roll where Denver's guard got screened off of the action and and were behind the play for pretty much the entire time. And that's just a tough place for Nikola Jokic to be. 
he needs players that can help make that easier for him. And Denver doesn't have those guys right now. So for the small guards, you got to stay off of screens. You got to be able to get around it. Because if you can, it makes life so much easier. The other is the switch in the post defense because all four of these guys, uh, Morris, Bones, Howard, Faku, all of them are small. All of them get posted up really, really easily. Even Faku. Like he'll flop and, and draw a charge on occasion, but for the most part, all of those guys, they just get beasted on when it's when it's throwing the ball over the top from a larger player. Now I understand that if you're six foot eight or taller against those shorter guys, it's always going to be a built-in advantage. I'm not expecting the moon here. But if it's a six six guy or a six five guy, and they just decide, yeah, you're too small. Or if it's Steph Curry just posting up Faku because he can in game two or game three of that series and just turning around and making it easy and kind of uh, doing whatever the heck he wants, that's not great either. So Denver's got to find guys or they've got to get better themselves at the defensive aspects of this game. And my biggest question here, can Denver's current group get better at those things? Mid-range shooting, screen navigation, and switch and post defense. I think that Bones can. He's so young. He's like there. There are some things that you don't like. You don't want to just use the term blank canvas because just because he's a rookie, just because he's young. But I don't know how much better he can get. I think he's got those six foot nine wingspan, long arms that can reach around and poke the ball free and do some different things. He's skinny enough that he should be able to get skinny on screens, but he's just got to learn those things. And if he can, then he could be a positive defender at some point. I'm not really holding my breath, but Jamal Murray became a positive defender and and did it in a way that people didn't expect. So maybe Bones can do that too. Murray is going to absorb some of those difficult mid-range shots as well, so I think that this group is going to naturally be better in some of those ways. But they're probably going to need to go outside of the organization to improve tangibly on the defensive end. That's through the guard defense. Like the wing defense and, and and all of that stuff is its own category. But point of attack, guard defense, being able to switch, being able to do all of those things, Denver doesn't have the personnel to do that right now, and that's not good enough. They need to be better. There needs to be some sort of improvement there. I don't know who is going to get improved upon. I have my guesses, but I think it's very likely that Morris and Bones are back and Faku and and Marcus Howard are not. And so you've got to find a way in those two spots. And maybe you just add one guy, maybe you add two, maybe you add three. But most likely one or two guys that can play better defense and maybe hit some more mid-range shots in general. That would be the ideal world for improving the team at at this position group specifically. Because there are other position groups that they are going to have to improve as well, some more than others. But for this one, I think it's pretty straightforward. Find a better defender. Find some better mid-range shooting. Because if you can get either or both, the team is going to look better for it. 
And that on that note, that is going to do for this episode of Pickaxe and Roll. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Really appreciate all the love and support, as always. I will be back on Wednesday. I'm going to do Monday, Wednesday, Friday pods from now on. Uh, these will probably be posted in the evenings as well, just because that's the time when I like to record. But there are potential opportunities for me to change things up over the course of this long offseason. There will be plenty of time for you to comment upon. Man, Ryan, you're not doing that pretty well. You should do it better. So if you like this format, if you like this podcast, make sure to go give it a five star or, or just let me know your thoughts. And uh, and I will definitely be looking for the Twitter comments to see who definitely listened to who did not. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Appreciate all the love and support. As always, we'll talk to you guys Wednesday.